Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is Motley Full Money. Welcome to Motley Full Money, the podcast that, like the market, is coming roaring back. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, of course, the straw man himself, Mr. Andrew Page. G'day, mate. How are you? I'm very well, sir. I'm very well. Ro- roaring back from what? Were, were we in a lull or something, were we? Ever higher, mate. We're just going to roar back higher like and higher, better. better and better and... I don't know. I don't know. I, I, sometimes when I start the show, I have a really good opening line. Sometimes I don't. That was the best I'd come up with this time. And thank you for Fair drawing enough. attention to it. I very much appreciate it. <laughs> pleasure. Uh, for those who don't know, of course, I am the Chief Investment Officer of The Motley Fool here in Australia. Andrew is the Founder and Managing Director of Strawman.com, which I'm reliably informed is a, what is it again? We're an online investment club. There you go. There you go. Yep. So check out strawman.com check it out. and go to fool.com.au for all of the good stuff from both of us, as I've said before, in my entirely biased way, two of the very, very best investment properties on the net in the world, and certainly in Australia. Well, you know, roughly, sort of. Okay, mate, let's, uh, let's get on with a very busy podcast, as we always do. And as I said, let's start with the market because it's, it's one of those things where there's probably not even a so what, but it's a worth remarking on because it's important and because we are in the business, in part, of investor education. It turns out the ASX has recovered already on the, we're recording this on the 10th of February and it looks like today might be a good day anyway. It's already recorded, recovered half of its January losses. What was a terrible month for investors and apparently, I think you told me, the worst month in history or worst January in history for the S&P 500. All of a sudden, you wait, you know, a couple of weeks and uh, it turns out the crisis is over. Surprising absolutely nobody, by the way, that kind of volatility and the freak out and the rates are going up stuff. Reminded me of the taper tantrum. Remember the taper tantrum when I a couple do. of years ago now the Fed yeah. was going was to uh, wind back quantitative easing and the market went, oh, no, what's going to happen? And stocks fell and, you know, fast forward and, you know, nothing changes. Uh, interesting though, mate, that um, this time around it seems to be the bigger end of the market pushing things higher. Uh, tech's still struggling generally across the board to recover. So it almost feels to me like a panic sell, but then some sort of, I want to say it's justified um, recovery, but the recovery feels a little bit different to the fall. Is that is that the vibe you're getting? Yeah, a l- yeah, a little bit. I mean, again, it's uh, context always matters. I, I just want to make the point here that the Aussie market we are four percent away from all time record highs. Yeah, so, exactly. Know, it hardly feels that noteworthy. It's also worth noting too. You sort of you you pan out on that chart, and the, the latest little wobble looks exactly <laughs> like that. Just yeah. a little wobble. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I'm still of the I'm still of the view that a lot of the, the, the these indices, these averages, mm. hide a lot of of. Uh, there's a lot going on underneath the surface. Yeah, there. absolutely. You know, there's some companies that have gone incredibly well over that period, and some that have gone far, far, far worse than the yeah. average. Um, That's kind of the point because in the last, I mean, you know, January was the end of probably three, well, not even the end, was the latest in three or four months of a pretty interesting change in the market because the big guys have done pretty well over that period of time. Tech, particularly unprofitable tech, really has seemed to struggle share price wise. And again, these are either still generalizations as much as the total market is a generalization, but it does seem a bit like that kind of story, right? The, the so called great rotation or just the sense that with higher rates, unprofitable companies are worth less. That seems to be holding even as some of the market is recovering. Yeah. And, and this is, the, I've had a couple conversations with friends around this as well, is that you sort of see something fall, particularly also, you know, with a focus on tech stocks, they've fallen quite a bit. Yeah. And it's the, the easy inference there is, oh, now they're cheap. <laughs> I would, right. I would argue, and again, there's there's different different yeah. strokes for different folks here, but for a lot of these companies, I feel as though the move has been one from 
extreme hyper exuberance back to something that's still a little frothy, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, in a lot of cases. Like, it's not as though <laughs> for me they've fallen into like bargain basement territory for a lot of mm-hmm. these stocks. They, the the mm-hmm. market for technology stocks was just really something to behold. You know, yeah, it, that's right. it, it rolls off the tongue. Yeah, I mean, yeah. when when you and I were working together years ago, if I said to you, oh, hey, Scott, I've got this great, really fast-growing company. It's trading on 20 <laughs> times sales. Yeah. You would go, oh my, you know, this is ridiculous. But it, it's we we got very used to that, and we had things at much higher levels. And so oh, we've got really, we've yeah, now got yeah. things. You still look at these companies, and and let me let me state a lot of these are very interesting businesses yep, and yep. and real businesses, and and I think ones a lot in a lot of cases ones with exciting futures. Mm-hmm. But when you have something that is that is going from 50 times sales down to 20 times sales. Mm-hmm. I still struggle to see that as cheap. Yeah, right. You know, imagine if imagine if that business all of a sudden for some magical reason never had any costs, you know, and and they paid out every single dollar that they earned mm-hmm. in sales. Yep. It would still take you 20 years <laughs> to get That's back right. to whole, right? That's right? That's right. And now obviously in the real world there are costs yep. and uh, even even a decent business is going to have a net margin like so what the net profit is on that yep. is of, of 10%. Yep, yep, yep. It's sort of like the payback periods on these things are <laughs> insane. Yeah. Sometimes and, and the, the rationalization sort of always went that, yeah, but that's cool because they're growing really, 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 really fast. The economics are really attractive. So they're going to be very high margin, very defensive, very mm-hmm. strong, lots of cash flow businesses in the future. Yeah. And that's what interest rates sort of brought, I think, that more into the focus. But I think even under a scenario where interest rates never increased and always stayed at ultra record mm-hmm. lows, that was still a it was <laughs> it was becoming a more and more tenuous argument. Yeah. yeah. So I guess I guess my urging is <clears throat> when when you're looking at, at a lot of these companies, yep. don't automatically make the decision that they're cheap because they happen to be 30, 40, 50 percent below where right. they were. Yep. Um, they might be in some cases, but in a lot of cases, I think not necessarily. I, mm. I still think there is still a heap of expectation in a lot of these stocks. I think that's true, mate. And this is the this is the uh, it is the crux of growth investing, right? Uh, you know. The, the benefit the value investor has, and frankly, value investing hasn't done very well for the last decade, but the benefit the value investor has is they can use some sort of now, here and now number and work out whether to spend or to invest in that business or not, right? Whether to spend money investing in that company. If you're a growth investor, you do have to kind of, you are taking that bet that it becomes the next Amazon or Microsoft or Atlassian or Afterpay or whatever, where you do get those sort of phenomenal growth numbers. Now, arguably, Halfway still hasn't proven itself out, even though it was bought out by Block. It's someone else's problem now. Uh, but the, you know th- those those stories are also true, right? And there is that sense of of trying to get the the right companies, uh, and with that sort of growth, because they, they do happen, they do exist, and that's the mm. the holy grail for the growth investor is to find the next dot 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 insert company name here. Um, some who get our uh, marketing might see the next Afterpay around relatively regularly. Um, it, it's but it, that that is the challenge, right? If you can find them, if you can find, you know, if Afterpay is or was the next Amazon or whatever, you know, whichever version you want to use of that, there is real money to be made. So. How do you how do you square that circle for yourself or for our listeners? How do you think about you know you are taking a you are taking a very big risk to take a very big leap, but the payoffs are also enormous if you get it right. Mm. And then there's the value guys who are like, I'm not buying it unless it's less than ten times earnings. Um, that that's a very 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 big range of investing possibilities and lots in between. Right, the the stuff ex- exists in the in the middle, not at the extreme ends. But how do you how do you circle that? So you start off with you know the real, right at the beginning. And what does what does this company do? What problem is it solving? What's what's the addressable market? You know what what does what does success really look like? And you, and you can sort of draw a line back from there. 
Um, then on top of that, you've got, and this is the harder part, <laughs> you've got a layer on the probability of success. Mm. And, and that's very difficult. For my mind, when you look at the real, the real phenomenal mm. um, gains in technology, have all largely been around what I would term structural shift, mm. where there's just a massive changes in the dynamics of an industry and mm. you have the old the old guard sort of being tossed out, a new small scrappy um, uh, disruptor coming in and just eating all of their lunch. We've mm. talked many times before about uh, realestate.com, right? Mm. Like that that was when we went from newspapers to, to online uh, classifieds, car sales, these kinds of things. Right. Um, Prometicus going from, you know, machine-based packs imaging to cloud-based, you know, th- these things that, that are just – it change, the, the industry is changing the way it does things. So it's not as though these companies have, oh, we've got a slightly different thing here. Right. It's a little bit better. <laughs> it's attempting better and it's red rather than blue. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, it's, it, and, and then and then we're going to slowly take some market share off off, off the bigger guys. No, it's, it's, it's actually when it's like the, the old way of business is just no longer relevant. Mm. Um, you look at, uh, you know, whether it's online retailers, uh, whether it's um, – uh, logistic systems, anything. Whenever, whenever someone has come along and said, "Hey, here's a fundamentally different, su- vastly superior way of doing it," where it's just sort of like a no-brainer chance, and it's also what you also see here is it's just the 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 land grab opportunity is just so vast. There's huge first mover advantages in here as well. So, a company like Zero is a good example here, maybe. Yeah, as well. yeah. You know, we all sort of use uh, spreadsheets, or we had our desktop-based sort of program. And then there was this new way of doing it on the cloud mm. and vastly, vastly superior, huge market opportunity. The interesting thing here is, is that you actually could see very, very fast uptake and adoption. Mm. And the mistake I think often is you sort of look at this and go, wow, look how well they're doing. You know, they have a couple of years of, of really high double-digit growth and the share price goes up and you feel as though you've missed it. But for me, what's really fascinating here is that when these trends are underway, the, the the runway is is massive. It is it is absolutely massive, and I think that is where you have some more legitimacy in sort of saying some of these multiples are justified. Especially, uh, and this is this is this became uh, uh, more rare as we went on. If these if these businesses are sort of self funding and are able to sort of virtually bootstrap themselves, rather than mm-hmm. what's often happened, companies relying on just passing their hat around among shareholders every every <laughs> you know nine months or so, and just bleeding cash in the hope that it all comes. So the, the real successful ones have been able to do all of that, largely funding it by themselves, um, uh, taking advantage of this big structural shift, mm-hmm. having these first mover advantages, having this really rapid distribution. It just, that, 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 there's some of the things that I'm trying to sort of look for rather than a company that comes out and says, hey, we've got something that's, <laughs> uh, you know, I know you've heard of Amazon, but we're, we're doing <laughs> yeah, it slightly right. differently and we're a little that's bit right. cheaper. That, that's, that's very different. And, and technology yeah. as a category is very broad in terms of how it gets thrown around. You've actually yeah, got to right. go beyond those hype words and actually look at, you know, the business, the offering, this problem it's solving and all of these other kinds of things. So that's a long rambling answer, mate, but that's that's kind of how I think about it. No, it's it's the right answer. I guess I just I wanted to draw out, I suppose, the inherent challenge and probably, you know, it, as investing approach, it's really important to to manage your expectation or to, to calibrate your expectations against your investing style, right? Because mm. I think those that answer is perfect, mate. I also think that even with that strategy, you're probably not you, but anyone is gonna bat it four or five out of ten. 
because you are you are taking leaps of faith at those things and saying, I think this is all that stuff is true and you're right. And sometimes it absolutely isn't. Sometimes it absolutely isn't because of circumstances outside or inside the control of the organisation, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a better mousetrap. My God, they did. Afterpay. Mm. Uh, you know, my God, they didn't. Every other tech business that has the, the, the promise of whatever it's pr- trying to do and never quite gets there. And I think that's, I guess I just want to make that point that if you're, you need to, yeah, you, your strike rate, that the proportion of companies you get right is not the same as your average return, which is just simply the, the amount of money you make in total in your portfolio. Yeah, so and that's the thing are, that matters, right? Right. And so if you're playing the tech game, or you're playing the growth game, um, you absolutely should be thoughtful about it. Don't just buy any of them and expect to get X percent right. But even, even then, even because you are saying, hey, this could be the future of classifieds or this could be the future of medical imaging or this could be the future of whatever, um, even with the best of intentions, even with the best of strategies, it just may not work for, for a million different reasons. And that's okay. As an investor, your job is to make sure that whatever strategy you pursue is going to give you a, a return over time that beats the market, not yep. per company but per portfolio, right? So if, if you, you know, the VC investors who got 19 stocks wrong and Facebook stunningly right are pretty happy right now. Yeah. The value investor who only gets an average of 30 or 40% gain on, on his winners or her winners needs to be right seven or eight times out of 10 because the upside just doesn't allow for it. And so it's yeah. just, I, I guess I just wanted to, you know, draw that out particularly because if you are a growth investor and you're, you're getting your backside handed to you, it's a great time to take Andrew's advice and say, hey, am I sure this business has the, the chops I think it might? But also the reality is that in a lot of investors' case, some of us, the Motley Fool, David Gardner, Motley Fool co-founder, gets less than half his picks right. But he has been yeah, astonishingly it's four out of 10 successful. Or something. Right, yeah. yeah. But he's been astonishingly successful because the ones he gets right are those rocket ships. Some blow up on the on the launch pad, if I can torture the metaphor. Others hit the moon. And if you can get that, even four out of 10, he has just streeted the field um, yeah. when it comes to returns. And I'm not saying that because he's, he's the boss or because he serves in the US anyway, we can't sell it here. So it's, it's just a reminder that make sure your style, make sure expectations match your style, but that's not an excuse <laughs> to say, I can invest in anything because, hey, anything might do well. It's like buying a lot of tickets. One of them could mm. win a million dollars. That's not enough. Equally, make sure there is enough upside and you understand what game you're playing if you're going to play in the tech space or the growth space right now. It, it really does knock uh, investors around because there's nothing mm. – this, as you say, this is perfectly normal. So, I mean, you and I are always often asked for opinions on stocks on Ausbiz and other sort of yep. platforms, et cetera. And yep, yep, yep. every now – I don't know about you, but every now and again, some smart aleck writes in a letter going, oh, look how that you got it so stunningly wrong. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, but, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't want to make excuses or anything, but it's just sort of like, well, I, I'm, I'm going to do that a lot. And and in fact, I, I would suggest any any investor is going to do that a lot. That's yep, that's nice. not the point. The mistake is the mistake is continuing to hold when the thesis is clearly broken. So you can you can you can buy a share on a whole set of assumptions, and when not because the share price goes down, that doesn't mean you're wrong. When when the facts change, your interpretation of the facts change, then and, and you continue to hold or you buy more. That's the mistake. That is the real mistake. Um, the other mistake you can make here is as well is that when you get, and let me tell you, I've made this mistake a few times, is that when you do get it right, you buy something, you know, maybe a year or two later, you're up something like a lot, you know, 100%, 200%, you doubled, tripled your money and you feel like an absolute genius and you feel as though you need to lock in that profit. So, so David, uh, as you mentioned, has a pretty ordinary strike rate. But the, the reason the reason that he's got that great overall return mm. is not because of the ones he got right. He was ah oh, fantastic, and he locked in a profit. He just <laughs> never so true, bloody actually. sold. He never that's does. So yeah, and and it, I think that that's the other part of it as well. So so expect to be wrong a lot, 
but just acknowledge when the when a genuine mistake has been made and and walk away. And again, let me let me emphasize that doesn't mean that the share price has gone down because the best performers will have these huge drawdowns along the way to success. But those ones yep. that you do have where where everything is 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 more or less playing out as as you expect, hang on for dear life because the the gains to offset all of those other losses, you really need need those mm-hmm. you know uh, multi year yeah, yeah, yeah. multi bag yeah. kind of returns to compensate for it. Yep. So, yeah, I, I, I don't, don't, but don't beat yourself up <laughs> when when you buy a great company and drops thirty percent and then spends two years down there. Um, if and this this is the case we've we've talked about it before with zero with real estate, mm-hmm. yes, Amazon, yeah. you, you any you pick a, a pick a successful company, yep. they all along their journey had drawdowns of thirty percent plus, multiple, multiple, multiple times. Yep. Yep. But that doesn't doesn't stop the fact that they delivered 100x returns. You know that's and if you want that, and I'll put my hand up. I want that. <laughs> you you do have to be able to a sit through that yeah. uh, that 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 volatility and just just play that play that mm-hmm. long game because that, that's where the money is made. And don't don't be don't be surprised or upset when when you when you've a reasonable percentage of them don't work out. It's normal. It's perfectly normal. Yep. I think that's right. I think it's, I think it's, and just, I love, I love the last point, mate. I, you know, you know, I've talked a little bit about uh, my holding in Good Drinks Australia or Gage Roads Brewing that I still own, own and you asked me why I owned it and had that conversation. Uh, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to do the call to authority thing, the psychological bias. But David Gard does it, so it's okay for me. But mm-hmm. as a reminder, right, David says literally, hey, by the time my, my losers stink, they're so small as a portion of my portfolio, they don't matter yeah. anymore. Mm-hmm. And my winners win and they win so big that that's all that matters. And so there is something about that idea of just, you know, just he hasn't, he's never said he wouldn't sell. He does sell and trim some positions. So he's, I'm not, I don't want to put words in his mouth or in inferences that aren't right. But that idea of just, I'm going to let this play out and where it goes, it goes and so be it, right? And I don't think that's necessarily a, it, it's one of those things about, so we had a service that we launched uh, Motley Fool years ago called Motley Fool Discovery. And we, we committed to holding every stock for five years, no matter what. Mm. And part of that idea was that, yes, if you've got a sucky stock and the thesis is broken, you should sell and redeploy the money. They're absolutely true. But once you say to yourself, well, I can sell in some circumstances, then you very quickly talk yourself out of those big winners. And so yeah. part, of the, part of the idea of the strategy was almost that kind of psychological thing they call pre-commitment. So you basically start by saying, I've decided not to sell anything. Mm. And so when you think, gee, that's overvalued, do I sell it? Oh, well, I said I wouldn't, so I won't. Do that sucks, will I sell it? No, I said I wouldn't, so I won't. Overall, the, the hypothesis behind that was exactly what we're saying. Not that you couldn't cleverly sell the overvalued stuff, or you couldn't cleverly sell the crappy stuff and you couldn't do other things. Just that if you're not necessarily, if you don't know you're going to be great at this, there may be more value just literally hanging on and riding those waves rather than trying to be too clever as you go. What I love about that pre-commitment device, uh, aside from that, is that I think it forces you to, to choose your stocks and build your portfolio much more carefully. Right. If if you say I'm going to put ten stocks into a portfolio, but I can't sell, you'll think about it a lot, a lot, a lot yeah, more that's, carefully that's, than that's you would. Absolutely true, too. That's exactly part of it. You're right. Do you know? And and um, and, and it also forces you in your analysis too, because you, if you're saying I can't sell for five years, it, 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 I mean, you should always, I, I would argue, yeah. focus on this anyway. But it forces you to kind of think, well, what does this business look like in five years? And it takes you away from what's the next quarter's result going to be, mm. or you know, what's the next move from the RBA going to be? When when you when you're forced to think over that kind of time frame, yep. Um, you, you, you all of a sudden you, you focus on the things that really sort of matter, and it's and what it's really going to be is the longer term earnings growth and cash generative ability of that business. Yeah, and and 
it sharpens your focus to the things that, that really matter. Then you just strap on <laughs> and, and hang on for dear life because it's, uh, exactly. it's, it's going to be, even if you're success, this is the key point, even if, you're, even if you've picked a whole bunch of Amazons, yeah. you know, it's going to be a wild ride. And, it's, and, you, and the demons are going to come at night and, you know, geez, have I made the right decision? What have I done? Oh my gosh, the market's down 20%. You, you, have, you have to follow through on that. There's no point buying zero in 2018 saying that this is going to be one of the top three cloud-based right. accounting exactly. platforms. In right. the world, yeah, yeah. you know, 7 billion whatever people um, and then say that, oh, okay, now it's gone up 40%, uh, you know, aren't I clever? It's like, well, if you, if you genuinely believe that, why on earth would you get, why would you get out now for? Like, it's, it, follow follow that reasoning through. What does it look like when they've got literally 500 million subscribe, uh, subscribers out there, you know? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah stay, focus on what matters. Nice one, mate. I think we've done that one, but it's a really, really good point. Let's um, let's go to a bit of news. Uh, the PM Scott Morrison announced that the borders would be re- international borders would be reopening the tourists from the twenty first of February. By the time you hear this, that'll be ten days away. Um, travel stocks went through the roof. We had travel stocks up between six and twelve percent. Uh, literally, anyone who's anyone with any business in travel did really, really well on the back of that. We saw travel agents and airlines and all that sort of stuff absolutely fly. I'm. I'm going to just, I guess, use it to... We talked about market um, <laughs> gyrations and volatilities. We started the pod. Um, I honestly, mate, I don't get this stuff. I mean, I get it, but I don't get it, right? I get I get the instinctive reaction of, hey, travel's open. Hey, airline stock's up. We're all geniuses. Well done. Back to, off to the pub. Mm. But I just... I, firstly, none of these travel stocks are cheap on any sort of trailing earnings. They were already priced on future recoveries. Mm. Secondly, did anyone really think the borders were going to stay closed for five years? If your travel stock goes up 12% on the day because there was an announcement made, the only assumption you can make, if the shares were priced well after the announcement and efficiently before the announcement, that somehow there was 12% more value long-term over from here to eternity for that company, this was Hello World was the biggest one I saw at 11.8%. Um, was, was their business, is their business really 12% more valuable now than but was before? Now, yes, with the borders open, it's more valuable than closed, but they're never going to be closed for five years, right? It was going to be mm. weeks or months, maybe a year, but I just, I just, it wasn't every year. Like I just, I just, I don't really understand what assumptions were having to be made on both sides of that trade. The day before, or the day after, that says this is a sensible idea. Yes, borders are open. Yes, it's good for travel. But again, these companies. I mean, Qantas was share price wise had got back to to levels of you know a couple of years earlier. Like they, these weren't, you know, they, they weren't dirt cheap. If these were like half the price of they were pre pandemic, you go, okay, fine. Well, yes, now okay, they're going up, fine. I just, I really don't get it, mate. The the idea that shares are supposed to be priced based on future earnings from now to eternity, which assuming that's true, 99.5% of that future was going to be without borders being closed. I don't get it. What am I missing? I wish I had a good answer for you here. I I, I don't Me really too. know. Qantas <laughs> is the surprising one of, amongst all of this. As you say, it's, it's what is it, 550 or so at the moment? Yeah, yeah. The beginning of 2019, 570, you know. Yep. It's it's really, the, and the high that it got to just at the start of 2020 before everything sort of went pear-shaped, it was what, seven odd dollars or so. That is, and this is this is a business that's going to feel it more than most, right? Um I don't get it. I don't get it. You, you're right to sort of say now. At one point, when when the pandemic first hit, this thing got down to two dollars thirty. You know that that's when you start getting things starting getting priced for very very um, unsavory uh, uh, outlooks. Uh, but yeah, it, it going from five and up ten percent in the last little week. 
based on something that was really just a question of the exact timing and really over a relatively short span of time when over the, the period that you should be valuing this thing. I don't get it. I don't get it. It's, it's a good reminder. The market's not always rational. Um, and, and thank goodness for that. I just, I find it, I find it bizarre. I, I It's funny because ironically, there was some rationality before this, right? Like I, I think it's reasonable that Qantas was priced at that sort of level not because they were cheap on a, on, a, on a trailing PE basis, looking last year's earnings, but because when you look forward, you see that stuff. And that's exactly what you should be seeing and saying is the future is going to be more normal than, than the past. And so I should be pricing it on some sort of reasonable price. The recovery of Qantas' share price before that was entirely reasonable in my view. Now, maybe it was too much, maybe it was not quite enough, but it was very reasonable. You look forward and say, okay, it's been rubbish. 2022 is going to be better. 2023 might even be normal. What should we pay for these shares? $5.50? Okay, I don't love airlines, but I can see that that price is justified from some people. It's the jump on one day based on the announcement that completely blows my mind. It's an echo of the reverse case when the, the kind of e-commerce stocks, the Zooms in the world crashed in November um, of, what year was it, 2020 because the vaccine was announced as if it was never going to happen or we weren't going to find a way to live with COVID. And when Zoom crashes mm. 30% in a day because someone found a vaccine, it's like, mm. were you people really betting there would never be one? Like the, the only inference, so either side of that trade is either we got overexcited before and now we're not excited or we were reasonably normal before and now we're pessimistic or we thought this announcement was so dramatically important that it changes the future, full future value of Zoom by 30%. Three-tenths mm. of every dollar of market cap goes away just because of an announcement that we all kind of assumed was coming. I just, I, I don't, well, I probably should stop trying to make sense of it. Maybe maybe my point is just to our listeners, as I say, relatively regularly, don't listen to the market. Don't pay attention to what it's trying to tell you because it really has nothing to, nothing to offer. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I think so. It's also worth remembering that when these moves happen, what 99% of shareholders are doing nothing. Um, yeah, you, awesome. you you often say you know yeah, price yeah, is yeah. determined on the margin for for the ASX to register a price you know two people have to trade with each other so if 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 for whatever reason you know you decided to sell me your good drink shares today one of them and no one else out there did anything <laughs> and you happen to sell it at a price that was double the last price that would be the last recorded price yeah. that would be the basis on which the market cap is calculated yeah. so it's also it is while I get your point there are we were saying this last week, there's this thing called the market, but there's thousands <laughs> and thousands of people all playing thousands and thousands correct, of correct. different games. Yeah. And and a lot of these people are playing a very different game than what you or I are, are playing. Very different. That's true. That's true. And, and yeah, so most, most people aren't doing anything that day, but the, the day traders, the institutions, <laughs> yeah, they right. are all doing something. That's right. And, and that, and I think that's, that's how I sort of square that, that circle. Yeah, and maybe okay. it makes sense in their world um, for whatever, I don't think it does, but you know, I, can't maybe, see how it does. Like, I really yeah. honestly can't see the rationale that says this is worth more. I don't, I don't I, understand. I think there's actually a bit of game theory in there. It's kind of like, if you act first, you can, you yeah, can right. benefit. So here's something I think it's yeah. Keynesian beauty contest. I think other people will see this as good news and therefore other people will yeah. buy. Yeah. If I buy quickly before everyone else does before <laughs> that buy, you know, and it's it, like, it's kind of yeah. true if, if, yeah. if you can pull it off, it's, you know, I, I would argue particularly us poor little retail private investors, I, you yeah. know, to, to be able to sort of beat the supercomputers and the trading bots and all the rest of it, it's, you know, it's yeah. a mugs game. Yeah. But if you can, if you can front run, not not in the illegal sense, but just happen to get in first, uh, you know, first in the queue when when there's a reasonable expectation for short-term buying, yeah, yeah, good luck to you. It's just that it's, it's almost impossible to do for, for, for us small, small fry. 
Yeah, I like it. I like it. And, and, even, and even for the big guys, right? Because the, it's, it's an arms race because oh, even the people exactly with the right. best That's connections, the biggest supercomputers, you're not competing against us. You're yeah. competing against uh, other people with, with supercomputers and hyper-fast connections and the rest of it. So it's, yeah. yeah, it's a bit crazy. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Let's go to back to the, the, the market. Let's go back to big moves because we've had two big banks report this week and mate, CBA's result was astonishingly good. I'm no bank fan, nor, nor am I a massive bull bear. I think you're probably more bearish on banks than I am, but um, I'm, no, I'm, no, I'm, no, I'm pretty neutral on this one. But CBA's result was astonishing. Profit up something like 26 or 29%. Dividend up 17%. They grew their business bank at almost twice the rate of the rest of the market. In other words, they took a heap of market share. Um, they're they're going to buy back $2 billion in shares and still have $4 billion of excess capital on the bank. Um, mm. I, I don't know, mate. I, I, margins were squeezed a little bit. Competition is working, which is great for mortgage holders, not as good for shareholders. But, um, you know, competition, the only dent in the in the armour was that margins were compressed by a little bit. I think half a dozen basis points, something like that, which doesn't feel like a lot. It is when your margin is already less than 2%. When you lose those things, it really does hurt. But I don't know, mate. I... I Live more live low them. I, I couldn't. I honestly couldn't fault CBA's role. It was it was astonishingly good. I think CBA is probably the the pick of the big four. Um, yeah. they, they've they've been the most consistent performer and they've done the best for shareholders over time. Yeah. So yeah, yeah it, it was a good result. I mean, it, again, put it in context. I mean, the dividend has been lifted seventeen percent. It's still a mile away from where it was in twenty nineteen. Yeah, and in twenty nineteen, it had pretty much been flat for the previous three years. And you know, so it's sort of. Mm. Here's the thing with CBA. Is it going to be around? Let's play that long term game again. Is it going to be around in 10 years? Yeah, almost definitely. Um, is it going to be remain a very profitable business over that time? Absolutely. Going to keep paying out dividends? Yep. Are they going to be, well, is, is there a chance that there could be sort of recessions and wobbles and setbacks? <laughs> yeah, absolutely there, yeah. there are. But it's, it's still, I mean, this, this, is, this is not a speculative kind of investment. So you, mm-hmm. you've, got to, you've got to acknowledge all of that kind of stuff. Um, at the same time, uh, <laughs> unless you're getting a very high yield, you, you need a bit of growth that's sort of in there. And you. I think while, they, while they, they're posting some some numbers that look like really growth, they're comparing it to last year, right? Yeah. So it's sort of, I, I think it's worth stepping back here. These are, these are very, very mature businesses. They're already dominant. If anyone wins, if CBA wins market share, it's at the expense of the other guys. Oh, totally. That, and, that's almost and, my point. And vice versa. You know, in, a, in, a small, in a slow market, I think they've done... I take, I take all those points. I just think operationally, share price-wise, put that aside. Uh, well, we, we shouldn't because we're investors. And we'll get back to that actually in a minute. But uh, I just I just think operationally, it's, you know, compared to its, its compatriots or competitors, I was going to say both and either, and then I end up mashing them together. Compared to either of those two groups, I think they've done a really good job. I said, I'm no, I'm no, I'm no bank fan, nor am I, nor am I a bank bear. I just, I, you can't do better than that, I don't think, in a, in a, in a four-horse race. They have yeah. done an extraordinary job. If you can grow your market share in business banking, uh, if you can double, you know, your rate of growth is one point seven times the rest of the market. In in a in an oligopoly in a slow growing market, that is no mean feat, right? You don't get Woolies growing at that sort of rate versus Coles. You don't get um, airlines growing at those sort of rates versus each other, particularly um, in, in a in a business environment where, in theory, pricing should be keener and and the customers should be more rational. Maybe they're not. Uh, but it, I just I just thought it was a really really good result. It's very very hard to fault that one. I think. Oh yeah, oh yeah, a hundred percent, hundred percent. There's there's no criticism of that result. Well, well done to them. <laughs> Speaking of that, NAB this uh, only this morning again Thursday morning came out with a nine percent growth in profit. And again, that that mm. difference is as you say, 
a lot of uh, by the way, and, and both a lot of both profits are explained by right backs and provisions and stuff like that. I just it, you know I think ANZ was out with pretty much a flat result. Was it late last week? I think something like that. Um, just to, again, you know, if you're if you're looking at a at a category as a business uh, analyst rather than necessarily an investor saying we should buy those shares, I just thought you know relative to those two, CBA's result was just astonishingly good. Yeah. Yep. No. No. No fault there. Um, you know, I, uh, no. the, some of the net interest margins. Well, the net interest margin had come down That's a little the black bit. Spot. Yeah. Yeah. I do wonder what happens in a higher interest rate environment. Are they able to? Uh, they've got quite a bit of capacity to pass pass a lot of that on, but sometimes sometimes there's a bit of a lag there. I, I do wonder if they're they're going to remain a little bit under pressure. Um, just the nation as a whole, we've we've got a fair chunk of debt, so it's sort of like you, you wonder how yeah. how much the customers can continue to expand their balance sheets. Mm-hmm. Um, so exactly, yeah, know, that's right. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not trying to be bearish for the sake of it. Yes, but just you are. You some, could some you could balance. say nice thing about a bank if I paid you, mate. You're <laughs> congenitally incapable of it. Speaking of which, though, I have also said separately that I think this will be the best result CBA sees in a few years, mm. both because of the provision right backs and because of the realities of the market they're in. Matt Common expecting house price growth of 4 or 5% this year and a decline of 5 to 10% in 2023. Rates go up. Uh, if banks are lucky, they can kind of snaffle a bit more net interest margin with the spread between what they have to pay for debt and what they can charge for debt might increase a little bit if competition wanes slightly. But other than that, it's hard to imagine where growth comes from, right? The business bank hopefully keeps growing if the economy keeps growing. I want to say hopefully, hopefully for Commonwealth Bank shareholders and for the, and for the rest of us, we want the economy to grow and that should be good for business lending and business activity. Um, but if the average home loan taken out starts to decrease in value by any meaningful amount, uh, it's hard to replace or, or roll over. If you do 100 loans at a million dollars this year and 100 loans at $900,000 next year, the size of the, you say they've got a lot of debt, and they do, but obviously debt is their inventory to some degree. So if you've got less of it and you're charging a margin on that debt, uh, the less you're lending out, the less money you make. It's, it, it is to some degree hard to escape that very simple maths, isn't it? Look, I don't, I don't want to get into it because we've talked it to death, um, but it, it is it is you can't have a view on the banks without having a view on Australian residential property. Yep. It, it's just such a massive, massive chunk of their business. And CBAs so, in particular, right? That's that's the flip side of this is CBAs doing really well right now, but they are the most exposed if and when residential property prices take a pause or maybe even decline. Yeah, yeah. And that's the interesting thing for me. It's just like you don't have to get, you know, hysterical and talk about crashes or anything like that. It's just that the, mm. the extraordinary pace of growth flat lines for a little bit that's that's still going to be you know tough a tough environment particularly with um higher interest rates as well and the volume of of things that are churning through the market it's it's just something to be to be mindful of everyone will have their view i mean this is australia so if (laughs) you've got i'm pretty sure if you're listening to this you've got a view on property and whatever it is (laughs) that's 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 fine but that that is that is something that you need to be laser focused on when when you're investing in something like cba because it's it you you can't you can't sensibly make an investment in this without having uh, a, a, a reasonably high conviction view on, on what the property market is going to do because where one goes, so does the other. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Particularly, well, again, it's not, not only because the banks obviously have business lending and other things, but uh, as you've said before, the more we do have uh, economic circumstances that go against us, the more it does impact everything, right? Because house prices are going to affect business activity. Because, and this is the challenge with interest rates is we talk about rates in terms of the impact on, on mortgage holders. And that's absolutely where the first order impact. Second order impact is even if you can afford those higher rates, you're either going to save less or you're going to spend less. 
and that spending comes out of the economy as well, right? So it's not just mm. a case of is it going to impact the house, housing market directly, but what does it do for the broader economy? That's that's the biggest challenge. Uh, it's it's so yeah, absolutely. I, I was, was following a conversation on social media the other day, and sort of two people <laughs> talking about you know property, and and, and yeah. one was making a pretty good argument that you know it's um, yeah. probably likely to go sideways, and and my point was that okay. Well, I'll give you here's, – here's something that blows my mind a little bit. Something like – so the, the, the we haven't got some fresh data on this or it hasn't been released from Treasury for a while, but it's, it's something like 50 to 60% of landlords uh, receive negative rent. They make a loss on their rent. In other words, they're, they're negatively geared. So um, the trouble there is, is that – so that basically means you lose money each year. Um, on a on a cash flow on a rental basis, right? And people are happy to do that because I get I get a tax benefit from that because mm-hmm. <laughs> I've lost money. I, I pay less tax. That's that's how it works. <laughs> but you're cool to do it though because eventually you get this monster capital gain that makes up for all of it and a big capital gains discount. And it's it's a wonderful wonderful strategy when prices are rising at a sufficient rate. Mm-hmm. So what I think is interesting about a big chunk, a very much bigger than seems healthy, but a very big chunk of the property investment market. Is is wholly that the the investment strategy is wholly and solely dependent on on pretty reasonable um, capital gains. That's that's actually going to be a pretty dire situation, I imagine too. And it, and and people, I heard an economist the other day sort of saying, well, people will prioritise their mortgage over everything else, and I think he was right. But yep. as your as you say. Well, that means they're not spending money on uh, travel. They're not spending Correct. money at the shops. It, it has a big economic impact and everything's sort of connected. So it's sort of, it, it seems to me that even a sideways scenario for any extended period of time will will potentially just, yeah, it won't be a great situation and, but yep. in, and in and of itself could be a catalyst for further deterioration. So it's just, yeah, it just seems asymmetric to me in, a, in, yeah, a, in not a good way. Now, by the way, that's exactly what the RBA is trying to do when it puts rates up. It famously doesn't have a house price mandate. It does have an economic mandate and cooling inflation by restricting economic activity is exactly what they're trying to do. So it's important to remember, of course, and I know you know this, but um, you know, for listeners, we need to remember that the RBA is trying to do exactly that. They're trying to take money out of the economy uh, to make it uh, less likely that inflation continues to take off or economic activity gets out of control. Uh, so that, that's, to some degree, they'll do it absolutely open-eyed. They're not going to be all of a sudden, oops, we've got to do this for house prices and screw the economy. They're doing exactly the reverse way, unfortunately, which is mm. do this for the economy and screw house prices. At least that's been the last few years worth of uh, experience. But uh, that, they will know that. But as you say, mate, it's absolutely impossible to avoid that when costs go up because of inflation, it's likely interest rates follow. That hits us as mortgage payers. It hits businesses who are borrowing all that kind of stuff. It's a. It's just. A, it's worth remembering across the board that it's not uh, just the ability of people to, to pay a mortgage or otherwise, but it impacts broader economic activity as well. Yeah, I feel sorry for the RBA. They feel. I feel as though they've kind of painted themselves into a corner. Like yeah. they, they, I mean, think about, just think about your own life. I mean, have you filled yeah. the car up recently? Oh my yes, goodness. <laughs> exactly. Do you know, there's, yeah. there's that, we know wages have gone nowhere. Yeah. Um, uh, so let, yeah. let's say interest rates even go up a little bit and your, your mortgage repayment's gone up a lot. You're mm-hmm. paying much more mm-hmm. at the bow. So we know all of these supply chain problems. So just generally inflation, inflation for a lot of the goods and services that we're buying. It's just sort of, yeah. there's a lot of sort of pressure in, in all of, in all of that. And it, it's not to sort of, you know, forecast doom and gloom, mm-hmm. but but it just it does it 
it is a it is going to be a challenging scenario. I don't think rates will I think rates will go up. I, I just don't think they'll need to go up that much for the RBA Correct. to have the desired effect. Correct. Because because of the leverage in the system, they they go from 0.1 of a percent to a quarter of a percent. Mm-hmm. It'll probably have <laughs> Uh, not just in the actual financials of that, but just the psychology of that as well. It'll, it'll probably have a, 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 um, the desired effect. Uh, mm. Whereas in the old days, you might have, they might have had to lift it by two or three percent to sort of try and really put the put the brakes on things. Now you just really, really need to find just tiny movements will have this will have a, a similar kind of dampening effect. I think that's right. I think that's right. Mate, let's move on. Speaking of prices going up. One of the trends that we've seen recently is prices going down in energy. And it's one of those situations where worth saying, this is not necessarily an investment point, but it does have some impact psychologically, or at least the way we think psychologically and, and behaviorally. The, the, the scare campaign for years was, we can't have renewable energy because it'll push prices up too far. And lo and behold, we now have about 37%, according to AEMO, the energy market operator last year, 37% of our power generation was renewable. We had the best year ever for solar panels being put on roofs. That's not total capacity. It's literally the amount of capacity added. And that is more than some of the largest power stations in the country. Mm. And it's just worth it's worth thinking that through because regardless of where you sit on this one, and I'm fully in favour of renewable energy and action on climate change. I've said that before. Uh, so I'm not going to pretend I'm neutral on this one. But the point I want to make is not any of that. The point I want to make is that when you listen to vested interests, they will tell you exactly what they need you to hear to keep their little show going. And in this case, it was, you, couldn't, you shouldn't possibly do renewables because it's going to cost so much more. Uh, it's going to be terrible for the economy. Think about business costs, all that kind of rubbish. And it actually was a little bit true for a while because it was more expected to add renewable capacity than produce in energy from existing coal capacity because it makes sense, right? You're not paying the capital costs. Now we've hit effectively a tipping point and renewables are much cheaper than existing fossil fuel generated power. Just, just by happy circumstance, frankly, there's no written law. That I, don't, I don't believe in karma or the universe uh, doing anything special for us. It could have been exactly the reverse forever. Just turns out that once you've got installed renewable capacity, it is just heaps cheaper than, than mm. some of the, the fossil fuel generation. Why do I say mm. that? Two things. Uh, first is, if you bought the line that someone said, the scare campaign, uh, then... You know, there, there is the reality is far, far different, and I think that's worth. When everyone was talking, uh, was it was it uh, Munger, whose bread I eat, his song I sing, um, mm. maybe it's somebody else. Uh, Munger is never forget the power of incentives. But either way, the point of if you listen to a lobby group or a, or someone reporting something a lobby group said, we kind of need them around. Like they they add some value, all of them in in different contexts. We have lobby groups for employers and lobby groups for employees. We have lobby groups for solar and lobby groups for coal. We have all that sort of stuff, and you know that's. It's, it's a healthy part of, of our democracy and our political process, but it's important that we don't take those things. Business says this will happen. The unions say this will happen. Uh, you know, they're, they're obviously fighting their corner. They're not fighting for the best outcome for the, the economy or the society. So just, just bear that in mind. Uh, yeah. But, mate, there is no, that's a bit of an interlude in between. You can jump into that one if you want. But what I thought was amazing is during this week, I should say I still have my Fortescue shares, uh, but Twiggy Forrest has announced plans to spend $10 billion on the largest wind and solar plant in the country, in the Pilbara, to to uh, power Fortescue's energy needs up there. And it's going to reduce their carbon emissions by a full two-thirds. Hmm. Now, 
Twiggy has an environmental bent. He's absolutely, he's investing in hydrogen. He's seeing a future and he's wanting to make some money out of it. So let's make sure we keep that bit. Again, I mentioned incentives before. Let's keep that somewhere. But Fortescue is also not stupid enough to spend $10 billion on a, on a flight of fancy just to help the economy, right? There's a million different ways he could do this. Uh, he's literally doing it to make some money and improve his environmental impact. And the reality, as I said many times before, even if you don't believe in any of that, the reality is that consumers, governments and businesses in future will care a whole lot more about your carbon status. And if Twiggy can mine iron ore close enough to carbon neutral in a decade or 15 years, that will be a remarkable change. So I said, I own shares in Fortescue, so consider my incentives as well. But mate, this is just a remarkable thing. Also, by the way, quickly, and I'll let you jump in, but AGL today has also announced they're going to bring forward the closure of two coal-fired plants because they're simply not economic anymore, which goes back to my first point. So mm-hmm. things are changing. Uh, I, I absolutely care about climate change. I know there are some listeners who don't want us to talk about that. I'm sorry if that's you. Um, we're not going to sorry if you're wrong. It. <laughs> <Very nice. laughs> I'll say it. Here I we're not going to rub your face and Andrew jumps in. Um, but but yeah, I, I, look, I understand. So people say, look, this is a finance podcast, not a, not a climate change podcast. They're absolutely right. But the economic impact of that are really dangerous to try and ignore because you have an ideological view either way. Just as it would have been silly five years ago to say, I'm buying a solar farm because I'm going to make a fortune. And we saw big write-downs on those solar farms, right? There were times when it didn't make economic sense to do it. But that time has now moved meaningfully in the other direction. And we need to be really, really careful as investors which horse we're backing on this one. Your thoughts, mate? Oh, so much to say there. So the other mongerism that I was going to say was um, never ask, or maybe this was Buffett, never ask the barber if you need a haircut. Yeah, that's a Buffett's good one, isn't it? Which is, which is a great one. one as well. Yep. So you sort of say, oh, how could have we known and this and that? And yep. people yep. were worried about how it was going to go. Well, actually, depending on who you listen to, if you listen to the experts and the, the nonpartisan ones that didn't have a, a political dog in the fight, just, you know, it, none of this was a surprise, right? <laughs> They've been saying it for ages. Yeah. Just because those with vested interests were saying otherwise, you know, you just you, you've got to you've got to look at the the, the people who are giving you information, and it's yeah. not a conspiratorial thing. It's really not. It's just yeah. as you say, understanding the powers of of, of vested interests and, yep. and the rest of it, and what's they're going to say what's good for them. Um, and the other the other point I would make here is that we do often venture into sort of political realms and uh-huh. stuff. And I, I'd like to imagine it's not because we've got um, an axe to grind there yep. per se, but I don't think you, as an investor, uh-huh. you you kind of have to have a view on this kind of stuff because yep. it is so impactful to yep. to your investing, to the share, well, to the economy, therefore to the share market, therefore to your investments. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like, it's not just saying this is, here's my ideological kind of bent and I'm just going to you know, look at everything through that. It's I think as an investor, you need to be across all of these things mm-hmm. because they have very, very real direct impacts. Um, and, and, and the final thing I would say, you mentioned climate change in, mm-hmm. in regard to this. My argument has long been, Forget about that. Now I'm with you. I, I'm and 99.999% of all the world's leading experts. <laughs> that's that's where I'm going to side. But let's you know that I'm on I'm on that side. But my my argument would be well, let's forget about it. Let's not even let's not even factor it in. That's my point exactly. You know the, the reality is it's cheaper. 
And mm-hmm. and Twiggy Forrest is is no tree hugging hippie. He's there to make right. a buck, right? Yeah. So and and AGL isn't closing it down because all of a sudden they feel as though oh we need to do our part for the global mm-hmm. climate. <laughs> no 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 no. They're, they're doing it because it just that, that it's it's the economic reality of the situation. And this is where people get in in trouble by bringing their own ideological bent mm-hmm. to this kind of stuff. Doesn't matter. This is the point. Doesn't matter what you think about climate change and the rest of it. The reality is is that the economics. Are far more attractive. They're incre- They're acceler- That that is mm-hmm. accelerating Correct. more in that favour as well. Yep. So the the solar panels, the renewable infrastructure that we have today is orders of magnitude better than it was ten years ago. And in another ten years, just just extrapolate the the trend of technology there. It's just getting better and better and better. Mm. Do it because it makes sense. Do it because yeah. it, it, it's, it's going to make you more money, you know. And, oh, here's a little added benefit. It, it might mean that life on planet Earth is a bit more habitable for, yeah. for a bit longer. So it's sort of, you know, you're right to sort of be careful to say let's not bring ideology and politics into it. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, A, how do you avoid that? Because we're investing in the real world. True. And, True. And, and, and B, just, just cold, hard economic reality with these things. I'm going to actually – cover that first point mate because i i understand the we can't we don't have a choice we're human we can't we can't stop being human and be complete automatons and i think you're absolutely right where i think we can absolutely and should absolutely bring it into it is to remember that we are those people and actively work to try and avoid making those decisions out of pure bias emotion whatever else right because i think that was almost my point that i think if you think climate change is a massive, massive hoax, right? And the whole thing is ridiculous and governments and business and consumers are being hoodwinked by a NASA, WHO, United Nations conspiracy, even if that's your view, the reality is that the world you're investing in doesn't think the way you do. And so you simply don't, you, you, can, you can choose to waste money on that basis or you can- Are you going to die on that hill? Yeah. Well, but, but what I mean, yeah, but, but you can recognise. Now, the other thing is also true. If 13, 15 years ago, you thought the world was going to hell, and the only solution was to embrace renewables. You lost a squillion dollars over the last decade and a half because these things weren't profitable enough. We saw, you know, those who said when Obama came into power, they bought shares in Solar City because it was going to be the best thing since sliced bread, right? Because Obama was going to change things, renewable energy was going to be the future. They were right. And so we're going to buy Solar City shares. That was the world's most stupid trade. Now, and it wasn't, it wasn't because they were wrong about the future, just as even if I think those who think it's a conspiracy are wrong about the future. It's not, neither of those matters, right? It's the investment case in front of you. And this is where you need to be a little bit careful. You can choose to support whatever cause you want, but doing it with your investment dollars is not very smart if the trend simply isn't going to be in your favor. And so that's always the point I want to make is, you know, invest in the, invest in the reality that confronts you. You've got to invest in the world the way it is, not the way you wish it was. And whichever view and whatever, and this, we're talking about climate, you can choose whatever you want, right? Um, I hope that people will eventually, uh, I don't know, I can't think of a good example now. Oh, but actually, biotech's a great example. How many people invest in biotech because they want the cancer drug or the arthritis drug or the brain cancer drug to be successful? I get the desire, but you've got to realise the odds of you being right are so stupendously small that most people investing in biotech are wasting their money. Mm. And that's where you've got to look at the reality of the circuit. You can hope like hell that they, they find a solution. But assuming they're going to, it's crazy. You can love the fact that horse and buggies were a thing and you can love the emotional appeal and the, you know, the feel good of the horse and the buggy and the whatever. Investing in a horse and buggy company in 1925 was not the world's best idea because cars were the future. And that, that's, all I'm, that's all I'm trying to get out of this, mate, is that you know, when Twiggy says, here's $10 billion, I'm going to improve the value of Fortescue by doing this. 
that that's exactly what he's doing, right? He has environmental credentials. He has environmental preferences. He is absolutely keen on an environmental outcome. He's spending a lot of his personal money and time doing that. But when he's spending $10 billion of Fortescue's money, he's not doing it to uh, to virtue signal to anybody or to try and seem like a good guy. He knows that it's cheaper and he knows that the market is changing and people are going to say, I will buy your steel or your iron if you can show me you are carbon neutral or carbon friendly or less carbon intensive than the other guys or whatever it is. It's a smart and so it just make Right. And, that, and that's what I mean about the world that we are living in. You know, even he could be the world's biggest climate denier. And he would still do the same thing. Maybe he wouldn't. Should should still do the same thing if it makes money for the company and there's good news for its customers and makes his company's products more accessible and, and acceptable to, to the broader market. Yep. Yep. Yep, 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 yep. Agree with all of that. And I think they, they've done a good job of sort of laying out the case for it here in a pretty pretty balanced and objective manner. I, I like I like the good thing about companies that have a really dominant shareholder or founder or something mm-hmm. there's that you you tend to make they tend to make longer term decisions. So let, the reality of it is spending all that money today as you build that out is just all money out the door. Like the return on these assets, on these investments come in the, the decades, frankly, after they're all, they're all built. That's, that's the rationalisation. Yep, but it exactly. does, it's really going to, it's going to hurt the cash flow in the next year or two as you sort of build all, all of that kind of stuff out. Yeah. Yep. But is it the right thing to do? Absolutely yep. it is, you know. So there's a company, um, just as an example of that, a company I've got shares in called Nanasonics and I won't, I won't go into the detail yesterday, mm. but they, they announced this week that they've got this, they, they do these disinfection device for ultrasound probes and um, in the earlier part of their life, they had a distribution agreement with GE who, would, who had this huge sales force presence in the US. And so Nanasonics would ship it all off to them and they would yeah. distribute it. So they get to leverage off their sales force. Really great, sensible move. This week they said, actually, no, we're going we're gonna to do it direct. Um, and as a consequence of that, well, our profit's going to be 13 to $16 million lower in the second half yeah, yeah. because, because GE is going to wind down its inventory because it's mm. no longer going to sell it. The market dropped massive. The market was down <laughs> 15% at one stage. Yeah, it's yeah. like, hang on. What, what, what the hell? And I'm not, not making it about Nanasonics, but just this point of thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What yeah. they're saying is yeah. we are now that big. We've now got like 86% of their installed bases in the US. Most of the money they make is from these really high margin consumables that these mm. machines mm. use. And they're now saying that we're cutting out the middleman. So we get to have much more of the margin. You know, and we're, it's, it's, it's unquestionably a very sound long-term move, and yet the market sold off on the basis of it. Mm. But I'm really glad that there are there are management teams out there that will make what you might call the hard decisions um, for that longer-term benefit. That's what Twiggy's doing. Yeah. That's what Michael Kavanaugh is doing over at Nanasonics. And and I would I would say for, for for newish investors who are sort of seeing these things and the and the instant market reaction is yeah, don't you know <laughs> don't read too much into that because the market's probably just focusing on the fact that the next halves are going to be a little worse than they thought, not the fact that this business is going to be much more profitable and, and better and sustainable longer term. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's right. It's interesting to me that long term thing is worth talking. I was going to talk about something else. I mean, I hold this over to Sunday now, but because this is a good point you make, and we're almost out of time. The, the boss of Peloton, the the kind of cool kids, uh, what do they call stationary bikes? What are they think it's called? Exercise, Exercise bike. bike with an iPad tape. Yeah, basically. Uh, <laughs> sold, sold for $84 squillion each. It's a, it's, a, it's a good business if you can get it. He walked the plank this week. Uh, so speaking of long-term, short-term, I, I am uh, constantly amazed, amused, horrified 
by the short-termism of the market, right? And sometimes it's the CEOs. Sometimes it's just the, the, the fund managers who effectively have the casting vote on whether a CEO stays or goes because they have the right to appoint or otherwise directors and all that kind of stuff. Um, look, whatever you think of Peloton, I happen to think they're overpriced and, you know, good luck to you if you want to buy them, but if you've got extra spare money and you want to set it on fire, give it to me instead. Uh, <laughs> but, se- but separate to that, I don't know, mate. I, I don't feel sorry for the guy, but I do wonder if the guy who built this business despite that he's going through a short-term blip because guess what? People aren't stuck in their houses anymore. They're out going back out because, you know, Omicron is waning, particularly in the US where they didn't really have the lockdowns where we had all the same, uh, you know, restrictions or just personal choices to not do stuff. <coughs> Excuse me. And so they're back on the roads. They're back on their bikes. I, I, I just, I wonder what else they're expecting. I said, I, I, you know, the guy's fine. He's going to be, you know, he's got plenty of money. It's all good. I just honestly can't work out. You know, how, how quickly these guys get... I, on one hand, I like, I... I, I Criticize CEOs for not being long-term enough, right? On the other hand, I'm like, man, this guy's trying to build a long-term business. They've 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 given him the, the shove after three months of bad performance. So you're damned if you're damned if you don't as a CEO. Again, I don't feel sorry for many of them. They get paid very well and they can fight their own fights. But you gotta wonder, don't you? Yes. Uh, um, I, I think a big part of it is you get the shareholders you deserve. And so I think where the where you although there may have been some sort of longer term thinking and a reasonable business underneath mm. all of that, there was also at the same time a lot of hype, and oh, the, sure, it, you know it attracted a lot of hot money, and and it just went up to the moon at one stage. It was kind of like you you, you create a rod for your own back. I think yeah. there, yeah. so there's a lot of the the really great uh, growth success stories on the ASX at least that I've been tracking over the years is they've just, they've had management mm-hmm. teams that yes, as you say, they're making long-term decisions, but they're not over-egging the pudding. They're not trying, yep. they're not out there speaking to every investor relations firm and putting out paid research and advertising. You know, they're just <laughs> yeah. getting it done yeah. and they're very, very level-headed on yep. on what what they're doing. So I, you're right. You can't blame them too much except for when <laughs> you want to be hyper-promotional to, to oh, that's impact the short-term share price. That's I think, and then, and then when the market eventually catches up with reality. Yeah. yeah I, I, I feel as though, well, that, that's, that is a bit on you. You know, if, if you had been very balanced and sort of say, Hey, listen, we're doing this because we think over time it's going to be really great, but let me be really clear. This is not going to pay off in the near term. You, mm-hmm. you, you're not going to attract all that speculative hot money in the first place. And that kind of sucks at that point in time. But I think longer term, you're much, you're much better served um, mm-hmm. for all of that. Yeah, don't disagree with any of that. I, I do wonder though, someone's owning the shares the whole time through and yeah, the CEO is always working for the shareholders, whoever they are. Unless you've got a controlling shareholding yourself or you've got a large, uh, super friendly funds, because the, fund, the fundies themselves work for someone else, right? They, they have they have investors who want returns on their money. There is, you know, there, is no, there is no ultimate boss, right? Other than NASA and the United Nations who are doing the climate change hoax. But uh, there, there's no, there's no, uh, you know, there's no, there's no ultimate boss. I, I if you're as big as Peloton, you're going to have fundies invest in you who then are going to be responsible for a result that their shareholders want every three months, six months, 12 months. So I, I completely agree with your point a million percent. But I do, I, it, it, pragmatically, I do wonder how do you avoid, you know, which companies yeah. have, have been able to get the size of Peloton with the, like the, the genuine growth they've got, not just the hypey growth in terms of share mm. price, but yep. business actual, growth. You're growing it 100% a year. Mm. And then you kind of go, so I, I'm growing this fast. Let's make like Zoom, right? Grew so stupidly fast. It's going to have every man and his dog want to own shares. Like, and, and you might even go, oh God, 
I know what's happening next. But you kind of, it's hard to kind of, you can't keep them out, right? You can't hide that under a bushel. You, you get, I think if you're a slower growing business, I completely agree, you get the shareholders you deserve. If you're a Buffett style business, you've got 50 years of track record, you buy books, you know exactly what you got. And by the way, Buffett and his mates own enough of the company to say, I don't care what you think. Yeah. Uh, we are gonna we are gonna do what we want to do. But if you're a two percent shareholder, uh, you, you, the fund is owned fifty five percent of it. Retail shells own the rest. I don't know. I don't know if you can genuinely ha- navigate that path. Can you? Yeah. It, look, it, it is it is easier said than done. So I actually I got a few mates who are fund managers. Mm. One launched in January, <laughs> right? Oh and uh, what a time to start Brutal. a fund. Yeah, and uh, yeah, actually, they were down. I read their newsletter the other day. They were down like four percent or something oh, for January. Yeah. It's actually a really great result, partly because they hadn't had a chance to put all the cash <laughs> to work yet. That helps, you. exactly. But I can imagine that yeah. that a bunch of the clients are like, oh, "I bought into oh, this yeah. thing, and I've already lost me four uh-huh. percent in the first month." And he's like, "Dude, like, you know, totally did, were, right. you, were you were you trading intra month on <laughs> my fund? Like, what the hell, right?" But they <laughs> yeah, have to exactly. report it. I got a friend even longer term. It's been a bit of underperformance mm. over a very challenging period. It means it means means nothing, yeah. but at the same time, when your phone's ringing all the day saying, hey, you've lost me money, you've lost me money, it's not, it's, you turn around and go, yeah. yeah, but we own some really great businesses <laughs> and the whole market has collaped <laughs> anyway. And actually, yeah. we've now got this opportunity. Like, no one no one cares about that. I so I, I, get, exactly. I get where these yeah. incentives sort yeah. of come from. Um, but it, it, and it's, it's very it's very hard to resist as an individ- individual investor and also mm. as the people who sort of get all the heat from all of this kind of stuff. Mm. But but everything worthwhile is hard, <laughs> I would say. And that's the sign of it, – it, it's it, it's not that I don't get the incentives that are there, mm. but when I notice management teams that are able to resist that and speak against that, I, mm. I pay so much attention. You go, ha, ah, here's I someone. Actually, I think that's a really know, good point. Yeah, here's, think- here's someone with who's got the right – you got the who knows what's important, and then they know what the game is, but they're not going to play it. They are the exception to the rule, yep. but if if you notice if you notice management teams leaders that are sort of talking that kind of talk, mm. pay attention. And that's what I love about this. You can have a view on a business, and you can have a view as an investor, and they can be entirely separate things. I think the Peloton guy has been super hard done by, but your point about hey. Was he, was he saying this stuff? Was he doing that stuff? No. Is, is it, again, a slight on him? Probably not because he's in the market. He's in, he, he, you know, the shells when he took the job or, or the, the fundies that he, he, you know, the product he bought on board, he probably, maybe he had a choice, maybe he didn't. But as you say, that, so that's the, that's the Peloton story. You can take those ideas and look for exactly those sort of people. The, the Jeff Bezos, I own Amazon shares, who said at the beginning, this is day one. If you want to be a director on our board, you're not going to look 10 years out. I don't want you on the board. I don't want talk about the current results. That is a brilliant letter. For the future, right? Good uh, Buffett, who's said for years, we, we are winning this for the long term. Uh, plenty of others besides. It is a really, really important one, mate. We haven't got time for this one, but um, founder owners, uh, either who are actual founders or think and act like founders, so valuable because they just bring on an entirely different view, right? This is my life's work. This is my passion. I am going to create a business that I'm proud of that will do wonderful things. Here's my long-term vision. Here's what we're here for. That's where we're going. Doesn't mean they all they all make it. Some of them still get turfed. Um, I'm mindful of Daryl Bottomy at Bapcor, who was kind of not a founder owner, but kind of acted like that for his tenure and eventually got turfed. Mm. Uh, but while they're there, they tend to be, if not, there's no guarantees. I'm not even sure statistically whether it works out, but it's a really, really good starting point to start with those sort of people and those sort of companies. And then do your analysis on the business model and the valuation and the future and the opportunity, all that stuff. But if you can find a founder owner, it's a really good start. Oh, huge. Massive. Will you come back Sunday? Yes, you know it. Good man. Thanks for listening. We will see you on Sunday with our very special mailbag edition. But until then, full on.
Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under Financial Services Licence 400691.